You know, if you were to view Jesus' life as though you're watching a movie, just kind of watch scene play out from beginning to end, particularly the three years of his earthly ministry, from his baptism till his resurrection and ascension, the scene that you would find where Jesus would be the most physically energized, the greatest action-packed part of Jesus' ministry on his behalf, where he showed and displayed the most physical aggression or passion and animation, you'd go to the text we're going to go to today. You go to one of the stories of Jesus cleansing the temple. We never see him act out in such a way as he does in the story we're going to cover this morning. Unsurprisingly then, this is one of the most controversial events in all of Jesus' ministry for some people. In fact, I think that sometimes even believers get a bit uncomfortable with what Jesus says and does here. It may even alter the picture of Jesus that you have in your mind when you read through and consider some of these things. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 2. I'm going to read through this accounting of Jesus cleansing the temple, the beginning of his ministry, verses 13 through 22, uh, and then we're going to go back through and verse or two at a time. And by the end of the sermon today, my hope is to just provide for you three observations and then associated applications, three things we see in the text, and what should we do because of those things that we see. That's what my hope is for you this morning. So John chapter 2, uh, we're going to begin in verse 13, and I'll, I'll read this out loud. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build the temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, we yield to you, ask for your wisdom and insight. Lord, for any distractions or obstacles that might be in the mind or heart of uh, my brothers and sisters here today, I pray that those would just be removed, that we'd be able to overcome those, focus in on what your word says here, and seek application for these things, and that we'd honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go back to the beginning of that text, 13 and 14. This is a bit of the setup that John, the apostle who writes this here, gives us for the story. He makes no, he makes no judgment on this. He just says this is the event, starting point. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, this is taking place during the annual festival, the Passover, where the Jews gathered together to remember the time of the Exodus, where God redeemed them out of the hands of Pharaoh, 
He delivered them from the hand of Egypt, and He did so through many uh, mighty works and wonders that were on display through His servant Moses. The tenth of those plagues was the sending of the angel of death to destroy all the firstborn in every household. But the Jews, of course, uh, could be uh, uh, not under that wrath if instead of a firstborn in their house, they killed a lamb as a sacrifice, put the blood on the doorpost and lintel. And when the angel of death came, it would pass over the houses of the Israelites and not kill the firstborn inside. It was the night of their deliverance. Now, Jerusalem at this time when Jesus shows up for the Passover feast would have been packed with pilgrims coming to celebrate the annual feast. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 17, it tells us that all the men, 12 and up, were required to make the annual trek. They were supposed to come three times in the year to present themselves before the Lord with sacrifices and offerings. This was one of those times. Sometimes the men might come representing the family. Other times uh, the whole household might come as well. But they'd be traveling from all parts of the nation and probably even the Roman Empire where they might have been traveling from. So Jerusalem would certainly be abuzz. John mentions in this gospel account three separate Passovers, uh, one here, one in chapter 6, another in chapter 11. They all correspond to the three years of Jesus' ministry here as he's leading up to his death, uh, death, burial, resurrection. It says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And just a quick geographic reminder, if you're getting some of these words in your mind, Jerusalem would be a higher uh, up on the mountains than the surrounding region. And so the people would often come. Uh, they'd be literally traveling uphill to get to Jerusalem. So he came up to Jerusalem, even though it would have been south from where he, uh, where he was residing at the time at Capernaum. He makes his way to Jerusalem. Those people, they're people now that Jesus sees, he observes in the temple. And what are they doing? In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, John doesn't tell us exactly what they were doing there. He doesn't specify that necessarily, but we know in history and a couple of the things that Jesus says in his responses to the temple cleansings, we get a bit of an idea of what's going on here. These were the people who set up their booths, set up their market, a, a, a space of commerce in order to provide an essential service for the travelers. The pilgrims who would come in from out of town would have to provide sacrifices on this day, a variety of sacrifices, most notably the Passover lamb sacrifice. And when they arrived, they'd have to do that. And so rather than a person have to tra travel with a blemish-free male lamb from, say, Rome, say, Egypt, they could purchase uh, the animal there. It would be a much more um, a convenient way for them to, to conduct that, that, that operation. Additionally, they were supposed to pay the temple tax. This is the annual time that they would offer up the temple tax for each of the, each of the young men, up to adult men. And uh, they'd have to pay it in a silver shekel. And the silver shekel was not in common usage in that day. It would have been Roman coinage that was stamped with the, the image of the emperor and stuff on it. They'd have to uh, basically exchange the coinage for the Tyrian shekel, which was the purest silver uh, shekel they would have had then. And that was a service provided here by the money changers. So that's what's going on there as well. But this is all that John tells us about these people. It's all that he tells us about the setup. And if you and I were just to quickly read just that and pause, it might seem innocuous enough to us. Okay, he shows up, temple, he sees the people. Got it. 
That's all that we need to know. But it is clear that Jesus is not happy with what he encounters. Look at the next couple of verses to see Jesus' response to what he sees. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. <coughs> and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. It's safe to say Jesus clearly here did not approve of these people being there at this time. And it is a bit of a startling event, especially if you couch this in the background of what just happened. We just read, and last week we covered this text, on Jesus turning water into wine. He goes to another festival, a local one in Cana, the feast of a wedding, a marriage feast where people are gathered together and celebrating a wedding. It's a week-long event. He provides wine. He does the first great miracle of providing, uh, the, turning the water into wine. It's an amazing wine. Everybody's blessed by it. Jesus shows up to that party, and everyone's thrilled. Jesus shows up to this party, and it goes a different direction. So the disciples just watch Jesus provide greater joy for the festivity, and now he's watching them break it all up. It's interesting to see how John has that, those two stories Line next to each other here. It is a bit startling to see what happens here. But perhaps it's most startling because I think that people often have a very wrong view of Jesus, a wrong picture of him in their minds. In fact, if you have a kind of a wimpy Jesus picture, if you have that kind of hippie Jesus, the you know, the, the feathered hair and the uh, with the glowing aura around him and the uh, perfect white clothes and the purple sash, and then he's holding a lamb with a little smile on his face. Listen, Jesus was perfectly kind perfectly just. He was perfectly loving. It flowed from him. But he was a man, a perfect man. And he got angry. And he, 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 he shouted on occasion harsh words to those who needed to hear it. And here he performs harsh actions for those who needed to observe it. Now, Jesus' actions, and he's just to be said, were in no way sinful here. This did not taint Jesus' blemish-free status. Jesus was perfect, well, except for that one time he got a little out of hand. But besides that one time, other than that, he did great. No, he was perfect. This was sinless activity. These actions are in no way inappropriate. They are not lacking self-control. It's not as though Jesus wraps this up, steps out of the temple and goes, I'm sorry, I don't know what came over me. I just really got worked up in there. It's not what's going on. In fact, it's kind of notable that here and the other accounts we get of Jesus' temple cleansings, he doesn't leave. He hangs out right there. It's like he, he kicks all the people out and he stands right there. That's right. And people come to him to challenge what's going on. He doesn't wander out, and they hunted this guy down in the crowd. Hey, where's that guy who, who, who caused the ruckus in the temple? I think he's running over there. No, he stood right there. You know right where to find me. I'm proud of my actions. I have nothing to hide. But that's, that's kind of what we see in Jesus sticking around. These actions in no way, in no way violate God's perfect love for his people, or even Jesus' perfect love for these Israelites. But don't let yourself whitewash this event, because I think people have done this in history. Maybe we do it in our minds today, to make it more sterile, in order to match that smiley face picture of Jesus that we might, might have, the nursery wall kind of 
smiley Jesus. We might kind of have a hard time with this. Well, maybe, maybe uh, Jesus was just trying to get the attention with the whip of the animals. Hey, come on, can you go that way? Hey, can I ask you to move? Oops, sorry, table spills. Oh, whoops, the coins, right? No. I want to read for you uh, one commentator. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this about the, that same wrong view that he experienced early 1900s as he's writing about this. He says this, I make my protest against that weak idea of Jesus that imagines there was no lightning flashing from his eyes, no wrath manifested upon his face, and no anger in his heart. That is an anemic Christ who does nothing for the world. He's right. I think Jesus is acting out a display of righteous anger. Now, why does he do it? It is kind of interesting. John hasn't yet given us any indication as to why he's doing this. We just see he shows up in the temple, and if you've ever been to the temple uh, during Passover feast, anyone who's gone, you'll know that it's pretty crazy. That's, John might have that in mind. And Jesus goes berserk. Why? A quick note for you, because if you ever study this out, you might find this. When you ask the question why, the answer given oftentimes conflates a handful of the accounts in the Gospels of Jesus' cleansing. So what you'll see is Matthew, Mark, and Luke also record a cleansing of Jesus, Jesus cleansing the temple just like this, but they record it taking place at the end of his ministry, in his third year, as he's entering into Jerusalem, triumphal entry into flip the tables, and then he gets, uh, he gets put on the cross within that week, okay? And that's what we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Here we see it at the beginning of his ministry. He's barely begun. And so some have just conflated it, like, well, those are just one event. They're just kind of out of order because they're not, they're not caring to be chronological. They're just making significant theological reasons here. I don't think that that's accurate. I don't think that that's true. In fact, even of all of the seven go-to commentaries that I've been reading through in John to kind of get ready here, uh, each one of them were, said this is clearly two separate events. Jesus cleansed the temple more than once. Uh, now, I think that's true. It's probably two separate uh, temple cleansings, one at the beginning of his ministry, one at the end. There's a bunch of distinctions between them. I'm saying that to make the point that all we know of why Jesus did this now is what we get in this text here. We don't have to run off and chase into the synoptic gospels to try to find out, well, what other stuff do we have? Well, we know right here what Jesus said. Why does he do this? Now, now just a quick question for you. If you were to have observed our perfect Christ, watch this on a video screen. Maybe you didn't know the end of the story, what he says next. Why might... Why might Jesus do this? Why might he flip the tables, overturn the the money, uh, kick all the animals out? Why might he do that? There's a handful of reasons we could quickly come up with. Maybe those merchants were exploiting the people. Maybe they were taking advantage of the out-of-towners by overcharging. And actually, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts, it sounds like that might come to play because he calls them a den of robbers, right? Which implies that they weren't doing something above reproach. They were clearly, you know, swindling in some way. So that might have been the case there. Maybe they were uh, maybe utilizing unequal weights and measures in order to do that, which is a violation of the Old Testament law. Maybe they were trespassing on forbidden parts of the temple. Well, don't let the Greeks get into that part or, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, maybe they were providing impure sacrifices, defective blemishes on the animals because, hey, I'll give you a deal. I'll, I'll, I'll knock the price half off if you take the sheep with one ear, right? No, that's a possibility. Or maybe, quite simply, the hearts of the worshipers just weren't in it. 
All of these could be reasons, couldn't they? In fact, that last one is one that we see in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 1, this is what is said to the people. Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God about their worship practices. This is what he says. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. So what was being said there in Isaiah was the same kind of thing Jesus will say elsewhere. Well, they're doing right activity, but their hearts, nope. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Matthew 23, the indictment against the Pharisees, where he says, woe to you hypocrites. And he tells the people as he's speaking this out in the beginning of Matthew 23, he goes, do what they say, not what they do, because they teach what's true, but they don't do it. Because their hearts don't love God. So we could imagine, couldn't we? We could imagine a handful of reasons why Jesus might do that. Might cleanse the temple, flip tables. But he gives a very clear and specific reason here. And what does he say? Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The word in Greek there is emporion. It's the word we get for emporium. Bazaar. Uh, flea market. It, it, it'd be equivalent. Shopping mall. Don't make this place of worship a shopping mall. You see, trade, commerce, that enterprise... By itself isn't wrong at all. It's encouraged to do that with good, honorable, God-honoring practices all over the Bible. Jesus, no doubt, passed many merchant shops in the streets, probably bought maybe at some point when he was a kid, sold stuff for all we know. Uh, probably, very likely, on his way into Jerusalem on this journey, he's passing by merchants left and right. We have no record of Jesus flipping any of their tables. Except for here. The problem, obviously, was the location. Because the attention of the worshipers was being diverted away from God to shopping. Diverted away from the worship of God to something that it was not, in and of itself, the worship of God. That commerce was distracting the worshipers. Again, I do think that it's possible that in the later account of Jesus cleansing the temple on his, the next time around, he'll do this. I think he is calling out probably wrong practices of commerce there. Here, he's just saying, you're turning this place of worship into a bazaar. And what do the disciples think about this? They just watched Jesus turn water into wine. Man, we've got the guy. What's this ministry going to be like? Everywhere he goes, people are going to love this guy. Nope. They walk into Jerusalem. The very next thing we see happen, can you imagine them standing there like, uh, should, we, should we help him? Should we flip the tables too? 
You kind of can't help but imagine the, the sons of thunder, <laughs> the sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John, uh, j- jumping on in and being like, flipping, whoa, hey, we're with you, Jesus, flipping all the tables too. It's not recorded. But the disciples observe it at the very least. They know what happens. And what's their response? It says it in the next verse. So his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's all we get about the disciples. That's what they know. They remembered Psalm 69. That's where that comes from. Psalm 69, a psalm of David, who was so zealous for God's right worship, jealous for him being worshiped alone and rightly. That's Psalm 69, that same verse, verse 9 of Psalm 69, is quoted twice in the New Testament, once here, and then again in Romans 15, the other half of the same verse. The other half of Psalm 69 says, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Those who hate you have passed that hate on to me. And that's, what, that's kind of what's happened with Jesus as well, right? But the response of the disciples is actually helpful. They are prone to thinking wrongly, as we all know. In fact, there are occasions, like in Matthew 16, where Peter literally rebukes Jesus for saying he's going to the cross. No, Jesus, we will not let you be killed. He goes, well, if you don't let me be killed, you're going to stop the gospel from happening, right? He rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. But even the disciples here, upon observing this, they don't think the actions are necessarily overly harsh. They're not, well, Jesus got a bit carried away that one time. That's not them. They don't say this. They see this as zeal, zeal for God's house, a passion and enthusiasm for worship. And not only was the enthusiasm for worship a good thing, but it was prophesied. Ah, we remember King David even did something or said something like this to express his desire for the right worship of God. That's that's what's on display. Jesus is zealous for right worship. That's how the disciples respond. They go, ah, that's a good thing. How do the Jews respond? The others, maybe the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sadducees would have been in charge of the temple area. Sanhedrin were the ruling class. Maybe they're the ones who are bringing this up. What do the Jews say? Well, in verse 18, it tells us, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And again, by the response, that's kind of interesting. Because they don't just come in, that's against the law, go to jail. They don't just come in and be like, no one should ever do this kind of thing. They actually come in and go, listen, we could entertain the idea somebody might do this as long as we know you're of God. That's, that's almost what it feels like. Because they ask, what authority do you have to do this? Who do you think you are? In essence, they're asking, what gives you the right to regulate the worship in here? where we sell what we sell, who we permit to come in and do what they do. For a man to do what Jesus did, he must be able to prove his bona fides. Well, show us. You show us a trick, a miracle, a sign. You show us something, and then we'll know that you're of God. Isn't that interesting? That's their assumption. For someone to do this, he must have a reason. Prove it. Jesus answers them in the next, few, next verse here. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. This isn't surprising, because as is often the case during Jesus' earthly ministry, they did not understand what he was saying. This happens all the time, doesn't it? Literally in the next chapter, John 3, he's going to talk to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, and he's going to tell him, you must be born again. And he goes, get back into a woman's womb, your mother's womb. They're taking it super literal. In John chapter 4, he's talking to a Samaritan woman at the well, and he goes, you should have asked me, I'd give you, I'd give you living water. And she goes, well, you don't have anything to carry it with. How? I'm not talking about He tells his disciples, he tells the people, you need, you need the bread that comes from heaven. Bread, did you, did you guys all have food with you? He's not talking about that. John 6, you have to eat my body, drink my blood. And they're like, ew, you know? <laughs> and repeatedly, they take him at a literal level, and he's intense, intentionally using very symbolic language. Same as what's going on here. Destroy this temple, and in three days... I will raise it up. It's actually confusing to these guys, as we'll see. Wait, wait, you mean this temple? This temple that took 46 years to build up, up to this point. You're, taking, you're telling this temple. You're going you're gonna to rebuild this one, three days. It could even be destroyed in that short a time. Are you being serious right now? That's the question they ask. Wait, 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 how is that even possible? What could you even think? They consider it blasphemy. Mark chapter 14, uh, the record is of them saying, kind of pointing back to what Jesus said here. Um, we heard him say, I will destroy the te- this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. It's actually a, technically an accurate judgment. They just were confused as to what it meant. John even includes this note. The Holy Spirit, as John's writing this, the Holy Spirit goes, don't forget to tell them it's his body. And so what's included in the text with us here is this editorial note. This isn't the Jews speaking. It's not Jesus speaking. It's literally just John writing this in by the power of the Holy Spirit, making sure we know this. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Why is that there? Because evidently, John was concerned that even his readers would not be sure about what Jesus meant, that we might be confused either prior to being saved or after, one way or the other. So there's no confusion. He was talking about the temple of his body. Awesome, awesome help, just in, just in case we could have gotten lost. Jesus was speaking chiefly about his death and resurrection. Tear down this temple, kill me, and three days later, I will raise it up. It's a pretty strong statement. Not that it will be raised up. Not that. My father will raise it up. To be sure, the Trinity operated together in the sense that you could say the Father raised Jesus, as that in 1 Corinthians 15. See, there's the Spirit of God raised him. You can see that. Romans, you can see Jesus here saying, I will raise it up. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again, as he'll tell Pilate. And evidently, as Jesus said this, the disciples weren't quite sure what he meant either. Because look what it says in verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken, right? So it took until after he was raised, and this must have happened all the time for them. 
I don't know if it happened in short order or over the course of years. Someone goes, hey, I was thinking just last night. Do you remember years ago when we were, we were first going to Passover with Jesus and he said about tear down the temple in three days, he'll raise it up. You remember him saying that? That was his body. And they all went, yeah, right? And I don't know exactly when that happened or how exactly it played out, but it came to their mind. They recollected the event, what Jesus had said, and they knew that's what he was saying. And what was the result of them realizing that? And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And just so there's not any doubt about this, I don't think it means that they disbelieved him until then. I don't think it means that, well, Jesus said that one lie that one time. Hey, wait, no, it wasn't, right? I think that they meant, they, they didn't know how to understand it. They didn't, they didn't make sense to them. And so that was, it was kind of uh, something that they stored away and someday maybe it'll make sense to us. And eventually it did. I found several commentators as they walked through this part of the passage, um, and, which is not surprising that they'd pick up on this because most of these guys are pastors and scholars. They, their job was to try to help people understand uh, Bible truths. They tried to explain things all the time. The, uh, a handful of these commentators made note of the principle that oftentimes truth is proclaimed and it takes a long time before it finally sinks in. And I was like, oh, that's actually quite true. You ever as a parent say something and your kids are like, huh? And then you're hopeful that it'll sink in? Sometimes it does. And sometimes it takes time. Sometimes much later. If you've ever shared the gospel with somebody, proclaimed something clearly, biblically, evidently true, and it's just not been received. Don't, don't lose hope. Sometimes the Lord plants that seed in, and over time, that person will remember back. So let truth abound, and don't judge the response by the immediate reaction. Okay. I want to close our time today with the three observations and applications. First is this. Jesus cares about our worship. Jesus cares about our worship. I'm wording this this way intentionally, okay? And there's a couple things you got to have in mind here. First, I do think that there are a good number of people in our day, professing believers, who will say, does God really care exactly what we do in worship? Like, if we're doing it with a good heart, we, hey, we want this to be something that you like. Doesn't, isn't, that, isn't that enough? I think intent of the heart really does matter. I do think that's true, but... No, the whole Bible, from beginning to end, God tells us how we're to worship Him rightly. And it's always what's best for us when we get on board His plan and not just our list of preferences and desires. So that's one thing. And the second thing I would say quickly to this is the definition of worship in our day has been much watered down in some circles. And by that, I mean that there are some people today, professing believers, who will say that everywhere you go, whatever you're doing, it's, it's a worship. So you can, while you're grocery shopping, that's worshipful for the Lord. While you're going to work and work and uh, selling widgets and buying them, uh, you're, you're, you're worshiping the Lord. While you lay down to bed, go to bed, wake up in the morning, it's worship to the Lord. And there is a sense in which there's truth there. Yeah, you should be in a spirit of worship and never ceasing to pray and um, constantly thinking the thoughts of God and seeking to honor Him with your life. All of that is true. But that is not the same as the corporate Lord's Day intentional gathered worship. If everything's worship, nothing is. Does it make sense? If everything you do is worship, then, then, then why would there be any intention behind what you actually do when you gather together on a Sunday? Jesus cares about our worship. 
You know, this took place under the old covenant. This took place during a day when animal sacrifices were stock in trade, were designed by God. And not only that, this took place at the very end of that period of history. The old covenant was about to be fulfilled in Jesus. He had come to fulfill it and to establish a new covenant. It says this in Hebrews 8.13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The new covenant will replace the old covenant, fulfill it, satisfy it. By the time of Jesus cleansing the temple here, the old covenant temple or tabernacle worship had existed for about 1,400 years in that form. Not an unbroken line, to be sure, because there were seasons where the Israelites just straight up disobeyed God and didn't worship Him rightly with the temple. There were other times where they were exiled, and they couldn't because the temple was destroyed. That, That happened throughout history as well. But even before that 1,400 years established in the wilderness with Moses and the people, the blood sacrifices go back centuries, millennia before that time. And here we are at the very end of the age of animal sacrifice, these particular forms of worship, about to be fulfilled in Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice, the final high priest and prophet, the temple himself. And yet... Jesus doesn't just go, oh, well, you know, this is about to go the way of the dodo. We're about to be done with this. We're at the very end here. I mean, you guys weren't able to keep it right anyway, let's be honest. And there's minutes left. I mean, it's just a couple of years left before this whole thing goes. Does it really matter if we try to restore right worship now? Yes. Because God always deserves right worship. He even says this to the woman at the well in John 4. They have an exchange back and forth, and she's asking about a Samaritan. Uh, she's a Samaritan. She's asking about a Samaritan uh, practice. They have a little temple of their own because they weren't allowed to go to Jerusalem. They built their own, kind of made their own quasi half Jewish version of their system. And she, she asked Jesus this question. She goes, hey, should we worship here or there? It says this way in 421. His response to her about asking where to worship. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus clearly had it in mind. The worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and truth. It's not about where you go. It's not about the location. It's not about where do you bring your sacrifices anymore. He's about to do all that. And yet he cared to make worship right. Now, just just to make sure this isn't misunderstood, we are not living in the Old Covenant era. Our modern church buildings are not the equivalent of the Old Testament temple. They're not. Jesus is. Not church buildings. But Jesus still very much cares about our modern corporate worship. It's not as though Jesus comes, fulfills the Old Covenant, and goes, hey, whatever you want to do, I'm sure God will be happy. No. Much of the New Testament prescribes elements of worship. Jesus ordains specific rituals and practices in order to be done. Baptism, communion, the proclamation of the word in preaching. Even church services are talked about in passages of the New Testament, most notably places like 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. When you come together... Make sure you do and don't do these things. It really matters to the Lord what we do. 
He cares about our worship. And our worship, what we get from here in this passage, must not be distracted. It must not be distracted. Why? Because God deserves your attention. I want you to imagine for a moment, um, if, if we were to, at, at the mission church, here in the sanctuary, when you guys come to worship, what if you were to show up and we had a bunch of tables set up along the walls? That while you were in here on Sundays, you could go pay your tithing online over there or an envelope set up in that corner. On the other corner, you could go ahead and jump online and buy Easter dresses for your kids, you know, so that they come. Uh, maybe, maybe a Bible, a bookstore right over here in the corner here so you could buy some Bibles. And then, and then over here, you could go ahead and uh, uh, find a whole list of recommended missionaries to support online. Maybe you could, maybe in the midst of hearing a worship song, I like that one, you could run over to the corner and log on and download that song, make sure it's on your playlist. This is not, this sanctuary is not the modern equivalent of the Old Testament temple. And yet, if we were to do that, I have no doubt your gut would tell you something's off. Why? The fact that those tasks were connected to your life as a Christian. I, I, I intentionally came up with the illustration thinking of Christian things. It wasn't just shopping for shoes, right? It was, it was church-related, Christian-related things. Just because it was the sanctified stuff, not merely the secular stuff, that would be irrelevant. Because if that was going on in your place of worship, it would be difficult for you to fix your attention on God. God deserves our full attention and especially so in worship. Brothers and sisters, I believe that you need fewer distractions in worship, maybe now than ever before. There's a, there's a term that's being used in the marketplace uh, right now, especially online marketplace, uh, it's called uh, attention market or the attention marketplace. It's where people literally consider the attention of an audience in units uh, if you can get a few seconds of attention from a, from a person clicking on the site, that turns into revenue for the website itself. And so a whole bunch of different strategies are employed in order to win your attention. It doesn't matter if anyone reads what you have on your site. It doesn't matter if they want to buy the wares that are on there oftentimes. What matters is they got your attention. This is why clickbait works. They only need you to click. And now when I'm talking about the internet, it's real easy to go, oh yeah, there's some bad stuff on the internet. You're thinking like pornography and a whole bunch of other wicked things. That's obvious. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just shopping for shoes or a rug or a vacation you might go on. Totally innocuous, perfectly appropriate things, okay? Not sinful necessarily at all. But marketers have learned that everywhere you go, you've got your phone, you've got screens, you've got billboards, you've got TVs, you've got computers, everywhere you go, everywhere. And everyone's trying to get just a piece of your attention. And that's monetized. Is that sinful by itself? I don't, I don't think by itself. For, for, for one marketer to use the color uh, orange because it'll catch your eye more than the marketer that uses the color brown. I don't think it's necessarily sinful. But here's what it does do. It appeals to the flesh. It appeals to material and even sinful impulses oftentimes. God deserves your full attention. 
Jesus cares about our worship. So here's the application that is associated with this one. Take worship seriously. Take corporate worship seriously. You see, commerce wasn't wrong. Trade wasn't wrong. I I don't think that's the thing that he's saying is wrong here. I think it's that he made the worship space. They made the worship space the shopping mall. Shopping malls are fine out there. Of course, they should be honorable. Of course, they should have right equals weights and measures. Of course, they should be selling in good wares. But not in here. Not in the place of worship. That's what Jesus was saying about the temple. You and I must take worship seriously. I said before in the intro here, Jesus never got so physically animated, ever. We see him using harsher language. Matthew 23 uses about the harshest language we ever see him use. In a whole sermon. But we never see him physically throw stuff and kick people out. That's it's pretty intense, okay? And what does he do that about? It's not about people not feeding the poor or looking out for the orphan and widow. It's not about the fact that people war against one another. It's not disunity amongst the fellow Israelites, no. It's not even about murder and theft and all those types of things. It's about don't distract the worship of God's people. That's what got him so animated. It should not be any surprise that Jesus would care so much about this. What are you and I going to do for an eternity in heaven? In the new heavens and new earth, what are we going to do? Worship corporately. Every language, tribe, nation going to be there, all wearing the same uniform, the white robes that are the good deeds of the saints. And guess what? All singing the same song together. So interesting the way that Revelation paints that picture. It's not, and they were all there, each one in his own, saying true things about Jesus. Well, I think you could do that. That's not the picture. The picture is everyone saying the same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We sing the song in unison. Brothers and sisters, take worship seriously. Prepare your heart when you come to church on Sundays. This is actually one of the reasons that Jesus even says, before you even bring your tithe, maybe an equivalent to the altar, uh, the gift to the altar, before you even bring it, if there's something that's going to cause any distraction in your heart and mind, you need some peace associated with the brother or sister, leave the gift, go back, make sure you're good, and then come, then come so your worship is not inhibited by that kind of thing. Prepare your hearts to come to worship. Goodness, this is where, this is where when you come to, come, to, come to church, whatever you're listening to you know, all week long on your, your radio, tune, tune your heart to worship. Listen to, listen to songs that exalt in the truth of God and Christ. Try to get your mind and your heart right. Try to, try to as best as you can eliminate distractions. And it's going to be impossible for you to do this perfectly because you bring them in on your shoes. You literally wear your distractions on your body. They're in your mind all the time. That's why we often pray, Lord, please eliminate the distractions. Help us overcome our obstacles to seeing you and understanding your word better because we need the help to be able to do that. Figure out whatever might be distracting you, whatever obstacles you might have that are keeping you from just engaging in worship with the Lord and seek to obliterate those. You know, this is why the Sabbath is for rest. One main reason this Sabbath is for rest because work is distracting 
If you, if you literally left Sunday and you had after worship together here to go home and a whole list of tasks uh, you had to go do, okay, literally, mow the lawn, pack my bags for this week's trip I'm going on, uh, make sure I finish that report that I got to have done by tomorrow. If you have lists like that, it's going to be really hard for you to make this day devoted to the Lord. It's going to be very distracted, even by not sinful things. The lawn needs to get mowed. But the day is to be devoted to the Lord. And so we're to do things differently on this special day. You know, when I read the Bible, I always bring a notebook with me. I bring my notebook everywhere that I go, and as soon as I fill it up, I just grab another one uh, and just go right through again. Uh, just keep it with me, keep notes, scribble thoughts and whatever. And one of the things uh, that I found is a great service to me is that when I'm reading the Bible, just in my own quiet time on any given morning, and I have a task that comes to mind and starts to invade that text. I'm reading through the text, seeing some really awesome stuff. Oh, man, look at how cool this is. Oh, got to call that guy. I've learned about myself. I can't juggle those things at the same time. Okay, keep that in my mind. Don't forget that. Okay, what does it say up here? Oh, look at that. No, wait. Oh, no. Now another task. Don't forget to pick up eggs on the way home. Laura asked me to pick up eggs. Get eggs. Okay, don't forget that. And I'm juggling all these balls. You guys, maybe you too. And I'm trying to focus on the text. And so what I've learned about myself is if I just scribble it down, take one second to go pick up eggs. Don't forget to call Jimmy. Write that down. It's gone from my mind. And I don't have to focus on it anymore. It actually helps me eliminate distractions. I can just postpone those and know it's written down there. I'll get back to it later. Brothers and sisters, if you need to do that even on Sunday, if you need to bring a journal or something with you, that if you have that something coming into your mind, oh, no, I need to make sure I do that thing. Write it out so you don't forget. And then you can just put it away. Just let that thought be gone for a minute. Maybe that could help you. But brothers and sisters, take worship seriously. Take your Sunday gathering with the saints seriously. It is not the same as the worship that you perform by yourself when you're alone, sacrifices to the Lord of a good and kind heart, or right operations of what you do, praise as you sing to him in the shower, in the car. Goodness, do all that stuff, but it's not, it's not the same. You do need to undistracted, devote yourself to the Lord in unity with brothers and sisters. Second, and very related, very related to the first point that Jesus cares about our worship, is that Jesus alone has authority over worship. That's clearly related to the first point, but let me say why I think this is so different. Jesus' authority is on evidence display right here. No question about it. He could have just stood in the middle of the temple grounds, up on a box, and just preached scathing sermon. Ah, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. Ah, all you and your money changing, and all of you that shouldn't be in here. He could have just done that. He could have slowly and quietly gone up to each booth and say, hey, guys, can I get your attention for a second? I'm trying to see if we can shuffle more people out so that those praying and worship, we're not distracted. Can you just help me out with that? That's not what he did. How did he operate? He operated the way that you would have full right to operate if when you got home today, your house was full with a bunch of vagabonds who found their way, literally broke into your home, hanging out in there. And you're like, what are you doing in here? You could kick them out right away. Jesus is authority there like no one else does. It's actually a part of why I actually don't think the disciples pitched in. I don't think they would have had the authority to do that in the same way that he would have had the authority to do that. It's his father's house. He's not just another one of the worshipers. And even though the people yet then did not realize he was the one who ought to be receiving worship, he was zealous for the worship of his father. And made his whole life and ministry about that. 
You're in my father's house. It was on that basis that he kicks them out. What's the application of this? That Jesus alone has authority to regulate worship? Read what the Bible tells you about worship and obey it. Let God tell us what church should look like. We want Jesus to pick the music that we sing. We want Jesus to pick the prayers that we pray, the ordinances that we perform. We don't go, you know what would be a helpful ritual is if we did this thing that kind of pointed to this some aspect of Jesus' life and character. No, we don't even want to add those things. We want to be careful to go, Lord, we're just going to try this the best we can. We're going to fail at this time and time again. You're going to have to refine us over years, maybe decades. And we hope that we never stop maturing in this as we are on a vendetta against distractions and aligning to what you have said you want for your worship. We must not appeal primarily to the preferences and desires of people, not even believers, and certainly not, oh goodness, certainly not, the folly of appealing to the masses for what unbelieving people want for Christian worship. God forbid we ever fall for the foolish, albeit ubiquitous, modern practice of surveying the world and saying, hey, what do you think our worship should look like? It is absurd that any church would do it, and millions do. Why do you do this and not this? Well, we find that non-believers don't like, oh, that's a really interesting statement. Our worship must be an act of submission to God and to each other. And it's on display we gather together. You might not even realize it's on display. Your submission as a congregation is on display whenever you come in here. Do you know how I know that? You didn't pick that song you just sang. Someone else did. And by the grace of God, we've been granted a worship team. Christian leads the worship. They care deeply about the songs and the words and nitpick over, well, is that word entirely true? Well, maybe we should pick a song that we really feel is true. And is this too much? Is this too little for music? They care a lot about that. And somebody else made those choices, not you. And instead of coming in and going, well, I didn't pick that song. I'm not singing it. You just went, well, they picked it. And apparently, this is what we're all going to do. Of course you have your preferences. I bet you're... Spotify worship playlist looks different than the person to your left or your right, maybe even in the same household. When we come together, our preferences aren't what is high on demand. Instead, we leave those at the door and we come in and just worship together. And so we submit to one another, we submit to God, and we do all of that according to what we find in His Word as best as possible. And brothers and sisters, this will never be done perfectly. But churches should be on a continued path towards this. We should be eager to constantly make adjustments so that we become more faithful as we mature as churches and not less. I want you to know, we, we try not to distract you in worship. It's one of the things that we talk about a lot when we're picking songs and an and order of flow. And you've probably experienced some changes of the flow we tried over time. And all of those are done chiefly with this principle in mind. We want to get us out of the way and put Jesus on display. We want what's best for the worship of our Lord. We're working hard to build this into the next building as well. So, so the, the architect we're working with who looks at the plans and he's given, he's like, hey, we've done hundreds of churches. Hey, look at, here's some plans. A lot of churches like this. Uh, so what do you think about this? And we, there could have been a few times we've had to go, oh, that's not, we're not going to do that. So where are you going to put the fog machine? Oh, um, in the garbage can. 
And listen, I'm not even saying that with a heavy-weighted hand of judgment for anybody who utilizes those kind of things. I'm just saying, I'm concerned that provides more of a distraction than a help. If someone could convince me otherwise, maybe. Until that time, we're going to do our best to try to say, I don't really care what the world likes. I don't care what worldly concerts look like. I don't care what they do uh, when they get together in clubs and bars and uh, even just, you know, innocuous uh, secular gatherings. I don't want it to look like that. We want it to look like what Jesus wanted. And even though it might be super convenient for you to have booths set up in the sanctuary in order for you to do a whole bunch of different things connected to your Christian life, I think that'd be too distracting. Lastly, uh, running out of time here, the very last point is this. Jesus is the true temple. I don't know how you could read this passage without seeing that as one of, if not the chiefest point of this story being written. Did you notice the switch that Jesus employs when the, uh, the Jews are talking about the physical temple and he talks about himself as the temple? It's not surprising. We all saw that there. But he knew what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. And it wasn't for their benefit because he knew they were being confused. Jesus confused his current, his present audience for the sake of a future one. You and I. And the believers that have come since then. The disciples who would later look back and go, whoa. Oh, he's so good to do that over and over. You and I live, and I need to mention this because we live in Utah. We live in a land of literal temples. Literal temples that pockmark the landscape. And one of the things that make these temples anathema to believers is we look at them, and anytime there's an erection of a temple, a building of a temple, it is somebody saying, we don't want Jesus as the true temple, we want our own temple. We don't want to go to Jesus to be close to God, we want to go to a place. As believers, we see any erection of a physical temple as a literal turning away from Christ to something else. That's why we... That's why we Look upon these with disdain. Jesus is the true temple, torn down by the hands of man and built up by his own authority. And he said, there is no greater sign. This is, you want a sign? You want proof that I am who I say that I am? Kill me and watch me come back to life. Isn't that crazy? That's the sign. He doesn't, he doesn't even say, I'll give you no sign. He goes, you'll get a sign, all right. Because you're going to put me in the grave and I won't stay there. If you're not a believer today, you need to know this. We try to mention this. I try to mention this every time that I I proclaim the gospel and appeal to you. You're a sinner under the wrath of God, deserving his just punishment. And the only way for you to be forgiven of your sins is for somebody else to take that punishment. And that punishment was taken by Jesus on the cross. And we appeal to you repeatedly and say, turn away from, repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. Believe on Jesus Christ. But I try to, and I think this is true to say, I always add in there, always. Jesus who died, was buried, and then rose again. Because the cross minus resurrection is not good news. It means dead Savior. Another wise prophet, another good sage who's got some great teachings, who's in the ground. And that's not Jesus. We appeal to you to believe in Jesus. We're appealing for you to believe in the risen Christ who died for sins and raised himself up. And it's on the basis of him raising himself up that we even have the hope of eternal life for us, that if you turn from your sins, put your faith in Jesus Christ, 
you will raise from the dead to be with him for forever. So that's the charge. Believe and live. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this in ways that I couldn't possibly uh, improve upon. So I just want to read for you how important the sign is of his actual resurrection from the dead. Look what he said in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read 13 through 19. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You know, if you're waiting for a sign from Jesus, he may not give you the sign you want or when you want it, but he has indeed given the final sign, his resurrection. I'm going to conclude our time with Acts 17 mentions the same thing, the assurance that we can have of Christ, his character, his nature, and his work by the resurrection. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do you believe it? If you do, I want to welcome you to the table this morning, communion. As Christians, you have to be a Christian for this to be meaningful at all. We partake of communion, which is what Jesus commanded and instructed that we would do. So we don't just do communion because it seems, hey, it's probably a good idea for us to remember he died for us. No, he said to do this, so we're going to just honor and do what he said to do. You're going to come forward, grab the elements, bring them back to your seat. But what we are saying by taking of these elements today, the bread and the cup, representing the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, we are saying the temple of his body was torn down. It actually was torn down. It was buried in the ground. And he raised it up. If you're a believer today, if you have discerned the body, that is, you have acknowledged your place in the church of Christ, you're welcome to come forward this morning and partake. I'm going to go ahead and pray to close the sermon, uh, introduce communion, and uh, you can come forward and grab the elements. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for truth. Help us to eliminate obstacles and distractions all the time in our life, but especially so when we worship together. Lord, teach us how to gain a better focus on you, on truth, on the worship that you deserve and that we need. And I ask you to help us understand the significance of communion, an act of worship that has been established and ordained by your perfect son. So we yield to you this morning. We defer to you as we do what you've commanded for our good and for your glory in taking communion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.